The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Spend a little time with us on a Sunday morning, and we'd love to high-five you after the service, say hello, and give you a little gift. Hey, um, I, I really wish that you could experience my perspective every Sunday morning. I don't know if it's a different backdrop today, but you sounded so good today. It, you sounded amazing. In fact, look at somebody beside you and tell them, if they did, you sounded great today. Go ahead and tell them. Hey, if you've been around here a minute, um, you know that uh, the, the stage looks a little bit different today. Um, the Colony Theater surprised us on Tuesday, and they were like, hey, we've got a big production going on, and we came in Tuesday afternoon, and the entire stage had a production and a stage set, and we were like, oh my gosh, this is different, and so um, our team scrambled, and we put together um, something, you, don't, you can't see it, but literally there's walls behind us, and an entire stage set, it cut off a third of our stage, and uh, we had a team that got here at 6 a.m. every uh, today and for every uh, Sunday for the next few weeks. And uh, if you're looking for a place to serve, we could use you on the setup team. These guys do an amazing job. And so, yeah, thank them. Hey, let me do this. We're, we're in a brand new series today. We start the book of James. We're calling this series Kinetic. And we're looking at what your faith is like when it's set in motion. And James has this interplay between faith and works. And we want to look at that over the next few weeks as we explore the book of James. We're going to start in James 1 today. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to read from verse 1 to 12, all right? So you can take it out. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We're going to put it on the screens, and you can read it that way, all right? Let me do this. Let me pray for us in our time in the Word, and then we'll get started. Jesus, um, we just ask that you would give us yourself today, the Spirit of the living God. We know you're present. We know you're available. And so, God, today, we ask that you would... Speak to every part of us today, our mind, our emotion, um, God, our will today. And so I pray that you would, by the spirit of the living God, would speak to our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears, and help us, Lord, at the end of this morning, God, to move our feet in the direction that the spirit of God would speak to us through your word today. In Jesus' name, everybody in the colony theater said, amen. Amen. Let me, let me do this real quick. Before we jump into, I won't do this for the rest of the series, but today, let me just intro the book of James. James is a book that a lot of scholars look at and they relegate to sort of a secondary book status. Um, in fact, Martin Luther called it the no, epistle of straw. And, um, and so it's a book that some scholars have looked at and say it's sort of um, in, in, um, in conflict with Paul's writings about faith, about justification by faith. And so what we see in the book of James is that James is very practical. It's not, in, it's not deep and heady theology. He has a direction that he wants to go to. And so the book will jump around. And we're going to talk about a lot of very practical things in the book of James. Today, we're talking about trials. And so James uses this Greek word in James 1 that um, gives us this idea of a trial on the outside. Then when we get to verse 13, he gives us this idea of a trial on the inside that's translated temptation in 13, 18, verse 1 through 12, it's translated trial. Um, James, the writer, is the half-brother of Jesus. And so we would um, understandably um, uh, agree, and as we read the scripture together, agree that James sounds a lot like the words of Jesus when he preached his sermon on the mount. 
And so 14 times, James will use this idea of faith in 108 verses in the entire book of James. James will give 59 commands that we are to obey God. So it's highly practical, and I'm excited for this series. So today, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go to verse 12. And James wants to talk to us about trials. Now, I don't know what life is like for you today. I don't know how you walk into the Colony Theater. My pastor um, in Atlanta always said, either you're in a trial, you just came out of a trial, or you're about to go into a trial. And all of us in our minds can think about probably the deepest trials we've ever been in. If I said what, if I looked at you across a coffee table today and I said, what's, what's the most challenging thing you've ever walked through? Probably most of us would have an idea. There would be a couple things that will pop out of our minds right now. Like, like this is the most challenging thing I've ever walked through. For me, it happened when I was 21 years old. My dad passed away suddenly. Up until that point, the most challenging thing in my life was I had a cat that ran away after we had him for two weeks, and I'm still skeptical about it because he took his bowl too, so I think my mom and dad had something to do with it. Before that, I had a dog that was chasing a three-legged dog in the neighborhood across the street, and he got hit by a Trans Am and killed him. And until my dad passed away, those are the two most, and some of you are like, but it's a dog, it's family. I'm like, That's not who I am. Um, and so, uh, but, but those are like the most difficult things I'd ever walked through. At 21, my dad passes away suddenly, and I'm faced with this trial, this challenge. Either you're in a trial, you're about to go into a trial, or you just came out of one. And so James has some instruction for us. He has some thoughts for us as we ponder why it is that we experience trials, how it is that we walk through a trial, and I believe it's going to be good for us today. So James chapter 1, starting in verse 1, I read in the NIV most every Sunday, and that will be what's on the screen. Read with me. James chapter 1, verse 1. Um, actually, we don't have verse 1 on the screen, so let me just read it real quick. James, a bondservant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, James, obviously the half-brother of Jesus. And then he says he's writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, and then he just leaves one word. He says, greetings. So let me tell you who James is writing to here. Um, uh, There were a group of disciples who lived in Jerusalem. Most of them had a Jewish background. After Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned in Acts chapter 7, the, the believers in Jerusalem were dispersed. The word that scripture says is diaspora. They were dispersed to all the nations. And so James is writing to the Christians who were dispersed after the martyr of Stephen. They're going through all kinds of trials. They're going through all kinds of struggles. In fact, according to James chapter 5, verse 4, the, the trial, one of the trials they're going through is that because they're being dispersed out of their homeland, they're now um, under the yoke of an unjust employer, a wealthy landowner, which also results in them also being poor and in poverty. And so we see a group of people who understand trials and struggles. And so understandably, the first thing that James wants to talk to them about is trials. Now read with me in verse two. Verse two, James says to the church globally, generally, not one specific church, those who are scattered, He says, consider it pure joy. Now, some translations will say, consider it all joy. Consider it all joy. Now, now listen to what he says. (laughs) Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Um, It's interesting here because the first thing that we think of when we're walking through the most difficult challenge of our life is not joy, right? But James is not here talking about the only response that we have in the time of trial is one singular emotion, 
one singular thought. What James is talking about here is not exclusivity of how we think and how we feel in a trial. What James is talking about is intensity. He's talking about completeness. Like like when you look at the grand scheme of what you are walking through, the totality of that scenario can be considered joy. He doesn't say it is joy. How do we know that? The scripture doesn't confirm to us. By the way, there's a, a thread in global Christianity that would tell us that God never wants us to be poor and he never wants us to be sick. I want to tell you that's heresy this morning. And we know that because the people that James is writing to are poor and they're going through difficulty. They're under the unjust employment of a wealthy landowner. They're in poverty and they don't even, and James doesn't even get into the normal difficulties of life, disappointment, sadness, grief, loneliness. The people James are writing to had the original 99 problems, by the way, all right? And so he's telling the people that he's writing to, consider it joy. Not that it is joy, but count it joy. And by the way, he's not talking about a feeling. Your feeling in a time of tragedy and crisis and trial may not be exuberance over what's happening. Listen to me. It may be hell this morning. You may experience sadness in what you're walking through. I'm encouraged by the shortest verse in scripture when Jesus looked over the dead body of one of his closest friends and scripture said, what did it say? Jesus what? Wept. James isn't saying the only thing you should experience, the only thing you should feel. He's saying, no, no, count it joy. Not necessarily a feeling, but how you think about what you are walking through. This is the first command we see in James. He says, count it joy. Don't just put on a happy face. That's not what I'm instructing you to do. But what you experience on the outside doesn't have to be how you respond on the inside. So he says, count it joy. Now, verse three will tell us why joy is possible. You say, Matt, I'm walking through something difficult now. I just got kicked out of my apartment. I just, I'm going through a difficult breakup. I just lost my job. Somebody in my family is sick. Matt, you just don't understand what I'm going through. I'm not downplaying the severity of your trial this morning. And God wouldn't want you to do that either. What I'm saying is, when you look at the totality of it, joy is possible, and here's why. Verse three, because you know that the testing of your faith That's what trials are for. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. How do trials test us? Think about that just for a moment. Think about your initial response whenever you're walking through it. I was a sophomore in college at the greatest university on the planet, Clemson University, which by the way, um, just had a wide receiver taken by the Los Angeles um, Chargers, and which we know the Chargers are going to win the Super Bowl this year because they drafted a champion. And so... When I was a sophomore at Clemson, I was 21 years old, I got a phone call from my mom and she said, son, your dad is sick. My dad was a very healthy man. And I knew something was wrong. You know know what races through our minds in that moment? Why, God? Does God care? How, How can I? What's this for, God? Why me, God? And then we make statements like this. This isn't fair. This shouldn't be happening to me. I don't deserve this, God. I can't deal with it. That's how trials test us, right? 
That's how trials grate us. But listen to what's happening here. Understand what's happening and apply it in your life. People are being persecuted undeservedly. Stephen is martyred. The Christians are dispersed out of Jerusalem. They're under the unjust employment of a wealthy landowner, which has resulted in poverty. They had the original 99 problems. They were experiencing suffering and grief and trial. And James doesn't say why the righteous suffer, by the way. But what James is convinced of is that that suffering, listen to me, is under the umbrella of the providential hand of God who has their best interest in mind. (laughs) Who has their best interest in mind. So we can have joy in trials. Why? Because God uses difficulty in your life for the purpose of maturity. Now keep that in the back of your mind. God uses difficulty in your life for the purpose of maturity. He's in charge of it. He understands it, and they're intended to refine your faith. So we just don't embrace these these tragedies and these struggles and these trials for what they are, for the pain, for the difficulty, for the challenge, for what they are. We embrace them because there is a broader and a grander purpose because of what God wants to accomplish. Listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter 1 verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And he says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Then Paul says in Romans chapter five, not only this, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. So then Matt, what is the purpose of my suffering? Why am I going through this? Well, the scripture says the purpose in verse four is to let perseverance finish its work. What is perseverance? Sidetrack just for a moment. What what is perseverance? Perseverance gives us an idea of stability. The picture that perseverance, the word here is drawing, is someone who is bearing up for a significant amount of time under a considerable amount of weight. That's what perseverance means, right? You're in a trial, you're in a struggle, you're going through a difficulty. Perseverance says there may be an extended period of time where you have to bear an extraordinary amount of weight. Um, several years ago, I, I um, did P90X. Anybody done P90X? <laughs> That's a terrible name for a workout tape, by the way. It's an hour and 20 minutes. It should be called, this is for Olympic athletes only. That's what it should be called. I don't think that's a marketable name, but that's what they should call it, right? And so an hour and 20 minutes. And then they were like, people can't do an hour and 20 minutes. So let's create a new one. It's 45 minutes. Let's call it insanity, which I think should have been what P90X was called. And then they were like, well, people can't do 45 minutes. Let's create a brand new, and it's only 25 minutes. Let's call it T25, which I think they should have called this. You don't have a lot of time and you're lazy. This is the workout for you, all right? I've done all three of them. And so several years ago, I did P90X and it was a group of like five or six of us. I woke up at 5.30 in the morning and we gathered at this building and, and, um, and so we got there. It was like five guys and this one girl that I didn't even know. And I was married at the time, so I'm not looking to impress her, but like there's this manhood macho-ness to the process. You're like, oh, there's a girl here. Yeah, 
P90X, I just got done with P180X, that's what I'm talking about, you know? And so I get there and they're like, hey, pastor, why don't you stand up front? I'm like, you know what, I'm just gonna stand in the back and I'll do my exercise. So, so the first day is the fit test. Anybody done P90X? Let me see your hands, all right? These are the insane people. There's only one and two, me and you, all right? And so the first day is the fit test, right? So they're like, how many jumping jacks can you do? How many up-downs can you do? Can you touch your toes? I'm like, touch my toes. I can't touch my ankles without bending my knees. What are you talking about? And so I get into this fit test, and it's embarrassing. Was it embarrassing? Probably not for you. You're totally fit. It wasn't embarrassing. Just embarrassing for me. And so then I go through two weeks of P90X, and like with like a couple days off, and I think I may have slept in a couple days, don't judge me. And then like two weeks of P90X, and then they make you take a second fit test. And so when you're taking the second fit test, in between the exercises, you write down what your score is so you can compare it to the first fit test. I'm taking the second fit test, and as I'm noticing, oh my gosh, it's like double what I did the first time. Either I'm extraordinarily out of weight, I mean, uh, out of weight, I, I'm extraordinarily out of shape, I'm lazy, I'm slothful, or this really works, right? It's the same thing, like, like the same thing when muscles um, are under this, the, when muscles face this resistance, they create strength. It's the same thing with tests. It's the same thing with trials in our lives. When, whenever we walk through something that's stretching and strengthening us, it's creating stability in our lives. And James says here, James says here, when you're in a trial, the purpose is so that God can raise you up to maturity, but the only way that happens is when you respond the right way. What is the right way? The right way is that it may be a long length of time that you have to bear up under this weight. But the result is your spiritual muscles, your, your, your faith is strengthened, your your, your, your godly character that God is refining is growing strong if you allow the work of God to have its course. It produces stability in our life. But James says it's only possible when you respond the right way. And this is what he says. Let perseverance in verse 4 finish its work. Here's why. So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You know what our response is? We want to short circuit our trials, right? Like how do I fix this current circumstance and scenario? When I came home from Clemson the day that I found out my dad was sick, the first conversation after talking with my mom and my dad was with our family doctor. Dr. Schuler, what can we do? How can we solve this problem? That's typically our first response. I would say it's probably natural God's purpose is maturity, but here's the thing. We don't think that way, right? We, we don't think that way in the time of our trials because we have different goals. Here's why. I have a goal. I want to be successful. I have a goal. I want to be paid well. I have a goal. I want to get a raise. I have a goal. I want to raise a family a certain way. I have a goal that is, is, is not necessarily the goal that God has whenever I walk through trials. Then when trials hit my family, whenever they hit my work, whenever they affect my bank account, it devastates us. But listen to me real quick. But if our goal is not necessarily to fix my circumstance, but if my goal is to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus, then we can take joy in our trials. You know why? 
Because whatever's happening in this length of time and the breadth of what God is doing in the depths of our souls will ultimately accomplish our purpose and the goal that we have. And that is to be more like Christ. But if the goal is just to fix the circumstance you're walking through, I want to say to you this morning that you're being set up for constant fatigue. Because your goal may, your, your, your trial may get fixed. It may very well get tri- tri- fixed. But listen to me, there's going to be another one. <laughs> and even if it does get fixed, there's going to be something else that you had in mind. But if your goal is to know God, to grow in him, then take joy because you're going to achieve your goal. <laughs> and that's what Paul says. James says, let the process run its course so that you can move towards completion. We don't know the length of the trial. You don't know how long you're going to walk through it. I walked for eight months through a trial with my father. I don't know how long it's going to happen. And you don't know how long it's going to happen, but you should be committed to the depth of that trial. Trials have a length of time, but they also have a depth of work. So the better question is probably not how long do I have to endure this, but how much can I allow God to teach me through it. Here's why. Because God's purpose in trials is accomplished when we allow endurance to do its full work. God's purpose in trials is accomplished when we allow endurance to do its full work. When James says that we will be mature and complete, not lacking anything, he means that we allow trials to dig to the depths of our soul so that we will reap moral integrity, godly character, Ultimately, that's what God wants to birth in us. Now, listen to this, verse five. How how do I navigate this then? How do I navigate what I'm going through? Because, Pastor Matt, I don't understand. And I don't even know how to deal with it. Verse five says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. It's the second command that James gives here. First command is consider it joy. Second command is ask God. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, the message version says, if you don't know what you're doing, pray to the Father. (laughs) I like how it says. Who gives to all generously. Does God give 10% of his wisdom? I hope not. God doesn't just give 10% of his wisdom to answer our trials and scenarios. By the way, when, when James here is talking about wisdom, what we're talking about, your wisdom is typically limited by three things. Your knowledge, how you understand and believe about a certain scenario. Second thing is, is your experience. Have you walked through this before? The third thing is your perspective. Like, is you, do you have an overall perspective from God? And the reason why we should ask for God's wisdom is because God has all knowledge. He has an eternal perspective. By the way, He saw what happened before your trial. He sees you in the trial and he knows what's happening after the trial. And then he says, he not only has knowledge, he not only has um, the perspective, but he has also, his experience has walked through every trial you're gonna walk through. And that's why we should ask God. If any of you does not have an idea of what to do when you're walking through a trial, James says, he commands you, ask God. God. He's going to give generously to you. Now listen to the sweet, sweet words that James says that hopefully should soothe your soul for a moment. Who gives generously to all without finding fault. 
Pastor Matt, if I come to God in my challenge in my scenario? Is God going to scold me because I should already know what I'm walking through? I should already have the answers. No, no, no. The message says, who gives up? He says he loves to help. You'll get his help and he won't be, you won't be condescended to when you ask for it. I love that. I love how James puts that. Think about all the circumstances when, that, that, that arise that cause us to look to God. In foxholes, we have some military people here today. In, in national crises, I don't know if you're paying attention to what's going on in North Korea. In political crises, we look to God. In times of death, think about all the moments where we innately look to God. Here's why. Trials have this uncommon way of causing dependency on God. Here's why. Everything in the normal course of life mitigates against dependency against God, with God, on God, I'm sorry. Everything in the normal course of life mitigates against dependency on God. What, what does everything else in life besides scripture tell you about dependence? Depend on yourself, look out for number one, you can do it, pick yourself up, use someone else, depend on something else besides God. But what happens is when we read scripture, scripture pulls the rug out from underneath our mansions of self-reliance. So the only thing we can see is dependence on God. And so scripture says, you lack wisdom? Of course you do. You don't have the knowledge. You don't have the experience. You don't have the perspective. But there is one who does. And because he has that wisdom, you should ask him for it. Now, verse 5 says we should ask, but verse 6 tells us that we should ask with the right attitude. I'm almost done. Verse 6 says, when you ask... It's not just that we should ask, but James instructs us with a right attitude. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Here's what I believe. The opposite of doubting is believing. Or you could say it another way. The opposite of doubting is anticipating. Uh, God, I'm anticipating that you're gonna have a response to my scenario and my circumstance. That's how you should ask. God, I'm, I'm anticipating that there is something on the other side of this ask. Romans 4.20 says, Paul says about Abraham, Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. You say, but wait a minute, Pastor Matt. Abraham did waver, right? Remember, he was old. He was old, and God's like, you're going to have a kid? He's like, I'm too, I'm, it's not possible. How can I have a kid? Remember, Abraham did waver. That's not what James means here. He means over the general course of life, there is a consistency of solid, committed faith that believe God's going to respond. Remember what happened in Genesis 11? Um, Abraham and his father and his whole family was together. It says, it says Abraham's father decided to settle in Haran. Abraham's father died and God looked at Abraham and he said, Abraham, go, I'm moving you to another place. We don't see hesitation. We don't see, um, we don't see him being stuck. We see Abraham saying, God, you said go, I'm about to move. And that's the general course of Abraham's life. And that's what James is talking about here. 
Not wavering, not, not, not being hesitant, but believing, anticipating that God has a response for your situation. In ministry, we often deal with people who are going through difficulties, such as um, men who are wrestling through pornography. We deal with people who have alcohol addictions and other addictions. And one of the saddest things as a pastor, when you're trying to walk somebody through an addiction and a trial and a struggle, is that they say they want out but they don't ever have an intent to do so. They say they want to come out, but the intent of their heart is to never leave pornography. The intent of their heart is to never give up their alcohol. The intent of their heart is to never leave addiction. This is what verse seven says about that type of person. That person should not expect anything, uh, to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. James says, when you ask, you should anticipate that God is going to respond. So here's a thought, and then I'm going to be done. I'm going to wrap this up. Maturity requires wisdom. Maturity requires wisdom, which God gives to those who ask in faith. Maturity requires wisdom, which God gives to those who ask in faith. Now, James is going to take a detour here, and I'm not going to spend any time in it. You can read it later. This is how James works. He goes from one to the other. And he begins to talk about rich people and poor people. And the essence of what he's talking about there is that materialism can be a chief threat to a mature faith. And whether you're poor, it should cause you to look up to God to fulfill your needs. And if you're rich, it should remind you that the stuff that you accumulate cannot satisfy your ultimate desires. And then James ends in verse 12. He says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When James talks about a crown here, we don't think of a tricked out, gem-studded crown that a king or a queen would wear. Um, James's readers would have naturally gone to this idea of this wreath, a laurel wreath that would have been given to victors of a race. And that's the idea that James is going for. Paul alludes to it in 1 Corinthians 9, 25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training and they do it to gain a crown. That's the word he uses. And it will not last, but we do to get a crown that will last forever. So let me sum up what James is talking about here. The summary is that trials remind us that we're living for something greater than ourselves. I don't know how you walk in this morning. Some of you are experiencing some tough things. We don't downplay that. We don't um, pretend as if it's not a challenge. That's not how God would respond to it either. But he has some wisdom for us today. And he says, however long it's gonna happen, allow me to use this, it's under my sovereign control. It's under my umbrella. It falls under my charge. And that's much better than falling under our control. And he says, I want to use this in your life to bring about maturity. Is it easy? No. And I don't intend to project that on you today, that it's gonna be easy. But what I do wanna project on you is that God knows, and the trial is ultimately going to be used for your maturity. And if you don't know how to handle it, God says, ask me. Ask me. That's actually a command. Ask me. Sounds a lot like Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. He who asks will receive. 
Let me pray for us, and uh, we're going to sing one song, and we will be done this morning. Jesus, I pray over the people in this auditorium this morning. God, we know that all of us walk into an auditorium like this on a Sunday morning with, with different things going on in life, different desires, different challenges, different struggles. God, you're not unaware. And God, I'm comforted to know today that you're not unconcerned. You've already seen the end of the challenge. Today, I pray that those who are walking through some difficulty would be strengthened because their faith muscles are being stretched and there is resistance. God, I pray that you would convince people in this room this morning who are walking through some things, God, that they should endure, they should persevere, and they should be committed to the depth of what you want to teach them through this, God. By the Spirit of the living God, would you bring comfort today? Jesus, we love you. It's in your precious name we pray. Everybody said, amen, amen. Let's stand and sing another song.